Well, good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's. Uh, we're so glad you did take the time to join us today. You get an extra gold star for coming to the 8.30 service. Uh, welcome to those of you online. It's really great to have you all here. When Tim and I were first married, we lived in Tokyo, Japan, and I remember we made friends with an older couple, like in their late 30s. And uh, they had two little girls, and I remember once chatting to them after they had just returned from what I think was a pretty luxurious vacation on an island off of Indonesia. And I remember the father, Alex, wearily shaking his head, because I was like, how was the vacation? And he was like, oh my gosh, Jenny, we were in paradise, bloody paradise. And the girls were still whining. Today we're uh, midway through our six-week teaching series, getting ourselves ready for Easter, looking at stories from the Old Testament, that part of the Bible we share with our Jewish siblings, uh, six stories that foreshadow the cross on which Jesus died. And we're spending so much time on this because we believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in all of history, relevant to every single person in every situation. All of us here, our children, our friends, our work colleagues, everyone. And last week, we unpacked one of the most difficult stories in the Bible, the almost sacrifice of Abraham's uh, beloved son Isaac to help us look at the actual sacrifice of another beloved son, Jesus. And today's is not much easier, right? We've got God sending deadly snakes to bite people and then giving people the cure of a bronze a snake on a stick. This is a strange and difficult story. It is not used for inspirational means. But there is life-giving medicine here for all that ails us. And don't pretend you don't have troubles. We all do. And there is some gospel medicine for us here this morning. It's Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, if you want to have it in your Bibles. But let's start with some context. Historically, this takes place roughly in the 13th century BCE. Uh, mighty Moses has led the Jewish people out of Egyptian servitude. And with Egypt now behind them, they're wandering in the desert on their way to the Promised Land, which is roughly the modern state of Israel. There's approximately 600,000 of them, and they wanted to pass through the land of Edom, modern-day Jordan, as the most direct route to the promised land, but the Edomites were like no dice. And so the discouraged Israelites had to travel further south to the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is infamous to this day for its deadly snakes. Whatever they probably thought, why should we expect anything different? This whole trip has been one big fiasco from beginning to end. And it hadn't taken long for the euphoria of their freedom from brutal Egyptian slavery to wear off. And the whining, the grumbling, and the revisionist reminiscing has begun. We want to go back to Egypt, they cried. In Egypt, we had cucumbers and melons to eat. No, they didn't. Only Pharaoh ate melons in Egypt, not the slaves. Then they complained about the miraculous diet of manna, bread-like substance that God had given them in the desert. No vegans here, we want meat. Fine, says God, here you go, quails. I'll send you tons and tons of quails. Enough with the quails already, they soon complain. 
Then the problem is the leader. Down with Moses, they chant. It's like how Winston Churchill lost the British election literally the year he defeated the Nazis. Like, what do I need to do for you people? Then they complained about God's ability to keep them alive in the desert. Finally, God seems to snap. We're done. I can hear myself saying to our daughters, I'm taking away your phones. With God seeming to give the Israelites up to the natural consequences of their venomous complaining. They've wandered into poisonous snake territory and people start dying. This is a hard uh, line in the Bible. And as a preacher, I was whining <laughs> with Tyler this week about how difficult this is to interpret. But it's what the text says, and we need to wrestle with it. The vast majority of human suffering is the result either of our stupid sinful choices or those of other people, sometimes other people on the other side of the world. However, it seems to have had the desired effect because the Israelites stopped complaining and they now go to long-suffering Moses to ask God to take the snakes away. And God answers Moses' prayer in an unexpected way. The snakes don't vanish. No blundstones seem to magically appear for the Israelites to wear. God leaves the snakes. But as the story wraps up, God then gives Moses an anti-venom serum. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. This strange little story, it teaches us truth, truth about ourselves, truth about the character of God. It's gospel medicine. And the first dose of this gospel medicine, we need to face up to our sinfulness. Talking about sin is deeply unfashionable, and the church does not always handle this well. But if we're going to live authentic lives with transparency and honesty, friends, there's no avoiding it. And among the many things that the Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements have gifted us is a renewed space in the public square to be honest about sin in the world. And no big shocker, people don't like it. Sin is a massive problem, the biggest problem in the world. Literary critic G.K. Chesterton, when replying to an essay contest that the Times of London was hosting on what is wrong with the world, he responded with the shortest submission. Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What Chesterton realized is that sin is not a problem out there, somebody else's problem or that of institutions and systems, because institutions and systems are simply made up of people like me. The essence of sin is not simply the doing of bad things, it's more accurately about our disposition as humans, our relentless attempts to build our lives on things that will never satisfy us, and then with all the terrible choices that flow out of that. Let's not sugarcoat, let's not use euphemisms. Barbara Brown Taylor puts it far more eloquently than I can. Neither the language of medicine nor of law is adequate substitute for the language of sin. Contrary to the medical model, 
We're not entirely at the mercy of our maladies. Contrary to the legal model, the essence of sin is not primarily the violation of laws, but a wrecked relationship with God, one another, and the whole created order. All sins are attempts to fill voids, wrote Simone Weil. Because we cannot stand the God-shaped hole inside of us. We try stuffing it with all sorts of things, but only God can fill it. We need to look reality full in the face. This truth is medicine about ourselves. And all 12-step programs will tell you that the only way to correct a problem is to recognize you have it. It's one of the reasons we're offering individual confession here on Wednesday nights in Lent. Now, the Israelites did eventually come clean about the source of their problems. Verse 7. The people came to Moses and they said, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. Glad you finally saw the light, Moses must have thought. But here's where the story gets mind-blowing. In response to the snake problem, God sends them a bronze snake. Newton's third law. Forces always come in pairs. You push a wall, the wall pushes back. Where does the anti-venom come from to treat a snake bite? It comes from the snake's venom. Where does immunization come from? It usually comes from the same virus that caused the illness. The serpents are our sin. We can't run away from that. And as the bronze serpent is held up in front of the Israelites, there's no place to hide. With the solution also in plain view, a bronze snake lifted high. And Jesus pulls no punches. This passage is about him. John 3, 14. Jesus says, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, like, I'm the problem. You're the problem. We are our own worst enemies. Yet Jesus will become the problem so he can be the solution. On the cross, Jesus is taking all of our sin, all of our venom, into his own body, and the poison kills him so that we could have a vaccine against the daily and eternal consequences of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 captures what's happening on the cross. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Crucifying the serpent of sin doesn't take away all the consequences of our relentless desire to push God out of the center, but it does give us pathways to healing, pathways to a reconciliation. Right? Remember Tyler on the first week, the cross that kills is also the tree of life. The empty tomb of resurrection is already hidden in the crucifixion. Every sin holds out repentance as an antidote. And reconciliation is the, a medicine planted in all our broken relationships. And, oh, how wonderful, eternal life is found in the Son of Man being lifted up. In the man Jesus, the serpent hung on a tree. God answers all the problems that plague us. Not by wiping us out, even though we're actually the source of all the problems. Like if anybody should be wiped out, it's like us. 
but by sending Jesus as the cure for our condition. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He who wasn't a snake took all the snake venom into his body so we could be cured. You may have noticed that once the Israelites came clean about their guilt, they didn't need to do anything other than look at the bronze serpent to be healed, right? And the shining jewel of the Christian faith that like nobody, nobody can beat, that the centerpiece of our faith is the gift of God's grace. Now we use the word grace in a variety of ways, right? Like John Tory's fallen from grace, a person, a, no, a persona non grata, someone without grace, they're not welcome here. But the Bible uses the word grace in a very specific way to refer to God's forgiveness and new life given to people who've not earned it. All the Israelites had done was stop their whining long enough to realize they were the problem. And God gave them the cure. Or put it another way, grace is love matched with truth. Right? Think about this. If you've got love, but you don't have enough truth, it's just going to be sentimentality, right? Like a Hallmark card, either about a situation or a particular person, and it, it, it affirms our view in somebody, but it keeps us in intellectual denial about their flaws or the problems. But if you have over here truth, but you don't have enough love, it's simply harshness. It may give you factually correct information, but it's in such a way that we can't hear it and it doesn't change our hearts. God's grace, however, is marked by radical truthfulness about who we really are. Look at the snakes. And unconditional commitment to us. God puts God's self on the cross. Jesus, fully God, fully human, takes the snake venom into his very own bloodstream and it does its worst. So we can live lives of hope, lives of reconciliation now and then life eternally with the source of all joy. Accepting that we're the problem and that somebody else needs to be the solution, that's all we need to do. God's grace is just flowing down that cross for you and I. So what does this medicine, uh, what does this medicine mean for us? Well, practically, we live in a culture of instant gratification. Like, I can't even tolerate the time for my phone to update. And if a, if a relationship is strained, we lack the patience to repair it, and how the slow cooking movement ever took off, I'll never know. The Israelites were impatient with God. And Eugene Peterson wrote that the Christian life is a long walk in the same direction. Obedience is a long walk in the same direction. We may not be wandering in the desert between Egypt and Israel, but the job search, the loneliness, the chemo, the divorce, inflation, it is a long, hard walk. And I know because you tell me. Our rhythm of life, five ancient spiritual practices, is meant to be both a guide and fuel for that long walk in the same direction. For us and for our children, we're meant to be shaping our children with these rhythms. The life-giving and life-correcting habits of 
daily reading of the Bible and prayer, of serving the poor, serving the refugee. And this is not only how we wait for God, for God's provision, but it's also the antidote to our relentless complaining and impatience. And spiritually, for the believer and the seeker this morning, the death of Jesus on the cross, it's already happened. And we're walking towards it during Lent. And we didn't need to lift a finger. The serpent has already been crucified. The healing power of the cross is free to all, and it's here for you today, medicine for our sin-sick souls. Accept that we're the problem. Fix our eyes upon the cross and let our Heavenly Father deal with everything else. Thanks be to God. Amen.